that groove. Man, Adam here. Glad to be back. Welcome to episode two of Dogs in Our World. We're about to get into it, but I want to give you some heads up if you have children around while listening to this episode. You may want to listen first before sharing with young ones. Also, this is going to be a three-part episode again. First, we're going to learn about the dogs who arrived to North America and how they did, their role in colonial history, and then forward in time to the 20th and 21st century. Don't forget to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving a comment on whatever site or service you're using to listen to this show. So come on, I can't wait. Let's get into it. You are listening to Dogs in Our World, a show that explores the history, science, and importance of the domestic dog. Here's your host, Adam Winston. The main thing about history is to learn it so that we can try to not avoid repeating it. And by repeating it, I mean that we repeat the themes of history uh, more than the actions of the people who performed them. That was actually Mark Durr, our featured guest, and I'm Adam Winston, your host. <laughs> uh, Mark was just describing the theme of today's show. This guy, he, he blows my mind every time the privilege, every time I have the privilege of learning from him. Uh, you may have seen Mark on PBS, A and E, the Discovery Channel. You can also read his stuff on the New York Times. Uh, Atlantic Monthly, the Smithsonian Magazine, and many other places. To me, to me, Mark is like the the Gandalf of dog experts. Uh, if get this, if if Mother Nature was actually a wise and no nonsense dude in Miami Beach, she would be Mark Durr. Primarily, I'm interested in the human connection to the natural and built worlds, and. Uh, how will I make of each of those things? Dogs, I have been interested in for some time because they are like a mediator between us and the natural world and the built world as well. Uh, since they're the oldest domesticated animal we have and uh, they're the closest one to us now. Uh, but uh, dogs are of interest to me because of their, their uh, great ubiquity in the world. There are about a billion dogs worldwide and also because of their usefulness to humans, uh, broadly spoken, that is usefulness. It's not like a utilitarian thing, but they're useful to companions as well as workers. So if that makes sense to anyone, good. And if it doesn't, then probably you need a dog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the first episode, we talked about the history of wolves and their transformation into dogs. Uh, in today's show, we're going to primarily focus on the history of dogs in North America. Then we're going to move on to the new world and through present day. Uh, in order to set the stage and give us a starting point, I asked Mark to explain how we first got dogs in North America. It's long been assumed that they came with the first uh, people to cross the Bering Strait, the Bering uh, Land Bridge that came into being after the ice melt of the last glaciation. Um, whether that's true, I don't know. That might change with the genetic evidence, but I think most likely they would have had to come with the first people who came across the Bering Land Bridge. And what kind of dogs do you think these were that first came here? Well, uh, they, they probably were rather wolf-like dogs, as most dogs were at the time. Um, 
I, and they certainly became more wolf-like as they proceeded down the continent, I would assume, because, you know, people traveling with dogs lose them and, and they, they need to replenish them. And there were no dogs to replenish the early dog uh, uh, among people. So they bred with wolves uh, quite freely and, and quite abundantly, I think, for some time after the dog came into existence. So we might call them dog wolves for, for you know, wolf-like dogs or wolf dogs for dog-like wolves. Native Americans were the first people to begin using dogs in North America. I have often said that dogs make me feel closer to uh, whatever you want to call it, God, Mother Nature, that that hard-to-define spiritual bond between a, a companion dog and us, it, it was likely felt by some of the earliest peoples in America. Well, I think it probably depended from culture to culture as precisely how they were used. We know from burials that they were buried with, that they had an important place in society because they often were buried with people, uh, especially important people. And it's assumed that that was to serve as uh, as as uh, guides to to the land of the dead. Sometimes the dog was sacrificed uh, to go with the people. Sometimes it died about the same time, I think. Um, but primarily, they were there to help the people navigate to the to the uh, to their new kingdom. The first dogs in North America, he says, also served as hunting dogs. Uh, little dogs were used to bay or control the movement of elk. Larger dogs helped Native Americans hunt bear and wildcats. They were even used to hunt otters and other aquatic prey. There was the Salish wool dog here in what is now the Pacific Northwest. These dogs were bred in isolation on an island by the Coast Salish peoples. The dogs' coats were made into fabric and clothing, and they were bred on an island in order to preserve the Salish wool dog bloodline. Is it possible that the Salish peoples were the first dog groomers? Here's Mark again. It was their role in carrying packs that allowed them to go with people into the new world. Um, I, I think that one can't deny that. You get you can travel much further and faster with dogs than you can on your own two feet. If only things could stay this harmonious and lovely. And unfortunately, if you remember from our recent interview with Eric from Wolfhaven, soon the Europeans arrive. After the break in part two, Mark is going to talk to us about the next wave of dogs to arrive in North America. Have you ever heard it said that some dogs uh, often reflect their owners? Well, I'll do my best to avoid the gory details, but uh, don't hit any buttons. I'll be right back. Support Dogs in Our World by making a donation. This fun and informative show is free to the public, but it's not free to produce. Every dollar donated goes directly towards production expenses. Help Adam improve the lives of dogs and people through more episodes just like this one. Donate today at dogsinourworld.com. Welcome back. 
In part one, Mark Durr explained how dogs first arrived to the North American continent and were soon used by some early Native American cultures. He claimed it was the dog's ability to serve as a pack animal, and by pack animal I mean they carried stuff, uh, that allowed them to enter the new world with humans. Now, I want to begin part two by talking about the dogs who probably came with Columbus, or probably had dogs, since dogs were pretty much ubiquitous on these voyages. Um, And the Spaniards brought a a number of dogs, since they had a number of types of dogs in Spain. They they brought, you know, dogs help with herding or guarding the the flocks of sheep that eventually came into being. Oh, they didn't bring flocks with them. They would bring some livestock. And uh, so they were brought to do that. But their primary function uh, for the Spaniards was to terrorize and brutalize and kill the Native Americans which they did with uh, great aplomb, it must be said, um, since there aren't many Native Americans left where the Spaniards were. It's a very sad um, part of American history that dogs were used in that way. But what it did do was it kept dogs from being militarized in North America for some long period of time, basically until World War II. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the Spanish use of dogs to brutalize people was so offensive to many uh, colonists in, in New England who otherwise weren't offended by much in the way of brutality toward Native Americans um, that they they just would not use dogs for any purpose. In fact, the one time dogs were enlisted was during the Seminole Indian War of the wars of the 19th century when uh, the Congress mandated that some uh, Cuban bloodhounds be brought to Florida to hunt out the Indians. Uh, they weren't very successful at it, and so that that was abandoned. Uh, one of the chief opponents of this was John Quincy Adams, John Adams' son, who became president. The U.S. presidents before and after John Adams also greatly valued their collection of dogs. Listen to what Mark says about the different purposes Washington and Jefferson had for their dogs. Well, Washington, of course, was a major uh, lover of dogs and breeder of foxhounds um, because foxhound was his passion. He uh, And he, he, he kept close tabs on his dogs. Sometimes he'd loan them out to people, but... Uh, he, he had, I think he had little dogs, some little dogs too, but foxhounds were his main thing. At one point he wrote to Ireland requesting, he had, you know, he used his extensive contacts to not only request dogs, but also to play, po- excuse me, politics. And so he at one point requested uh, from uh, Ireland uh, some wolfhounds because he wanted to get, hunt the wolves on his plantations. And he was told that uh, this was in right at the end of the 18th century. He, he was told that there were no more wolfhounds in Ireland because they'd all they basically stopped breeding them since the wolves had been extirpated uh, from the British Isles, you know, about 100 years earlier or 50 years earlier. And so uh, his his correspondent offered correspondent offered him a uh, a well-bred mastiff as a guard dog instead of a, you know, wolf fleet wolfhound. And 
of course, that wasn't very acceptable to Washington, so that didn't that dropped by the board. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, was into um, the herding dogs. He tried to get, he brought some back from uh, France with him. I find it fascinating that George Washington was more into dogs who could hunt fox and kill wolves, while Thomas Jefferson was into herding dogs. Dare I say a more peaceful purpose for a dog? I don't know. I go back to thinking about how often dogs can be a reflection of their owner. If you're interested in learning more about these presidents and their relationship with dogs, I highly, highly recommend you check out Mark Durr's book called A uh, Dog's History of America that he wrote. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of it, and I can't wait to finish. Then I'm going to move on to his other books before I read anything else. Uh, I have links to some of his books and articles on our Pinterest page. You can find a link to our Pinterest page in the top right corner of dogsinourworld.com. Coming up in the final part of the show, Mark is going to fly the time machine forward and remind us of some historical events in the 20th and 21st century that have affected the dogs in our world. We'll be right back with more Dogs in Our World. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can also message us directly via the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. It can be tough, but sometimes we got to get our hands a little dirty as, as we sift through time in order to be on the right side of history. Remember... As Mark Durr said at the beginning of this show, we need to learn about history in order to avoid repeating some of it. I went down some, some deep, dark internet rabbit holes in order to relay this story to you. And, and again, I'm sparing you the details, but we need to talk about some stuff here. Also, I still would rather my young nephews not listen to this episode until I have a chance to listen with them. Here's Mark taking us up to the 20th century and beginning part three with the gritty history of one of my favorite dog breeds. Patton, you know, had a bull terrier for sure who went around with him. Uh, pit bulls, they were the Staffordshire Terrier, as it's known, the pit bull in all its varieties, was a fighting dog. I mean, people went to fight, but fighting dogs was not, uh, was not viewed the way it is now. I'll skip past some of those details I was talking about. It was a blood sport, and most people, especially in this country, seem to not be bothered by blood sports. You used to be able to get the uh, rules of uh, for constructing your pit, your fighting pit, uh, up until about the 1930s, I think the last one was published. The United Kennel Club was uh, founded in part to register fighting dogs. And so to have them was not considered to be as uh, disgusting as it is now. It, it is important to note that just because pit bulls were used for blood sport or any of those breeds that were used for blood sport, it doesn't mean that pit bulls are predisposed to vicious behavior. We should always respect an animal's capability 
but there's a reason why we can have these dogs in our homes. Most dogs are pretty nice if you raise them properly. But if you want to abuse dogs and make them mean and vicious, then that's what you do. An even harder to stomach form of abuse was happening in Nazi concentration camps and witnessed by some U.S. soldiers. In, the, in World War II, the Germans uh, used dogs in, at, in the concentration camps to keep prisoners in line, to keep the people in line, and sometimes to maul them and kill them. And it was well known. So when the Allies, when the Americans went and liberated Dachau, they promptly killed all the guards and all the dogs they found there. It was an act of vengeance, for sure. And it was definitely probably a war crime, but who's going to count it, right? Because it was, it was to correct an even more egregious error. Or, or not error, I mean a more egregious act, which was the killing of six million Jews and five or seven million other people. Now, whether you think it was a war crime that the U.S. soldiers committed, or you're about to wave the red, white, and blue, let's not forget about a military prison that existed during my years in the service. During the Iraq War, Dogs were routinely turned on prisoners at Abu Ghraib. It was a big scandal, in fact, because um, I believe they were army dogs that were turned on the prisoners. And the Navy handlers, I might be getting this backwards, so don't quote me on it. But anyway, one set of handlers for one of the military branches turned their dogs on prisoners, and the others refused to do it, flatly refused the orders to do it. Because the dogs weren't trained to, to be used against humans that way. I'm going to have to look that up. I yeah, I have. That one. yeah, you can find the report, the Abu Ghraib report. Uh, it's not been suppressed yet. I might have it somewhere. I, I, I did look it up. <laughs> In 2006, the LA Times reported that Army Sergeant Santos A. Cardona was the 11th soldier convicted of crimes stemming from the abuse at Abu Ghraib uh, with, with the inmates there between 2003 and 2004. He was acquitted of the most heinous charges, which included unlawfully using his canine to bite an inmate and conspiring with another dog handler to, fight and, to frighten prisoners so badly that they soiled themselves. It's rumored that it was a game among some of the canine handlers and intelligence officials within the prison. In 2006, the New York Times reported that another canine handler, Army Sergeant Michael J. Smith, was also found guilty of crimes at the prison. CBS News mentioned Sergeant Smith in a 2006 story that quoted him saying to the jury, soldiers are not supposed to be soft and cuddly. Smith was found guilty on 13 counts. In March of 2010, the military's highest court upheld Smith's convictions. Okay, don't worry. (laughs) That's the worst of it, but we did it. I feel it had to be done. Not only is it important to know history, but we also need to look to the future and look at ourselves now.
as we begin to come near the up the end of this episode let's think about the dogs in our world going forward do you have any personal or moral opinion on um using dogs for military purposes i have uh, i have moral opinions about military use of military for military purposes i don't think we i think we're long past the time when we should have a wars of any sort um I don't think dogs should be used as offensive weapons against people for any reason. That's not why they exist. And that's why we did, you know, the Spaniards did that. And it was nasty business. It, the people up in uh, North Dakota just had dogs turned on them in a very heinous fashion. He's talking about reports of the Dakota Access Pipeline Company using dogs and pepper spray against Native Americans back in September of 2016 as they protested against the pipeline construction. And those with a memory of the Civil Rights Movement will remember dogs being turned on marchers time and again. The dogs used to protect the president are very perform a central function, and any dogs used in that way are not used as offensive weapons against people. They shouldn't be anyway. There's definitely one big difference uh, between the dogs from the new world and the ones now in our present day world. In my lifetime, certainly, we've gone from having dogs running around with kids all over the place um, to now being, they have to be behind a fence or behind or on a leash or whatever. You know, I came of age... Uh, walking dogs off the leash through through across the college campus and uh and through town and every everything else and now you couldn't do that without having someone complain or someone try and bust you give you a ticket or whatever you can barely go to a park now with your dog off the leash without having someone try and ambush you and give you a ticket what has changed well what's changed is is partly the mentality of people toward risk I think, um, look, people, there are a lot of people who won't even let their kids play outside now with or without a dog, right? I mean, or it's just a different world where people don't go out and don't do things so much anymore. Or, or it, it, part of it is also numbers, I must say. There are so many dogs uh, and so many people who don't really try to control their dogs. Looking to the future, Mark makes an ominous prediction about the large increase in the number of companion dogs in America. It wasn't too many years ago that you might have uh, estimates might have been 40 or 50 million dogs. Now they're like 60 or 70 million dogs and 70 plus million in the U.S. alone. Uh, so obviously I, I fear that there's going to be a, a backlash against dogs, but I think that's just because Dogs, in many ways, are a fad now, and fads have a tendency of disappearing. Dang, Mark is so smart. I want to be this guy when I grow up. Do you see where I'm going with all of this? Mark has been trying to teach me something. He's been trying to teach me that dogs are and always have been what we make them. We may not know exactly how they ended up in our world, But the great he or she obviously allowed dogs to be a bridge to something greater. I still still believe that our personal and societal relationship with dogs 
can often reflect our relationship with God or Mother Nature. I'm not doing Mr. Durr justice in this show. Whether you have a dog or not, you got to check out Mark's work. My first book is about the dog-human relationship. That's dog's best friend. Um, my other books, my second book is uh, Dog's History of America. And it's about the role of dogs in American history. Um, yeah, it does a pretty good job, I think, I must say, about uh, covering the territory there pretty much. And so far it does. I also uh, interviewed Mark the week uh, President Donald Trump was elected. If Trump is going to get a dog, what kind of tr- what kind of dog do you hope Trump ends up with? Um, I would I wouldn't even make a suggestion. I would hope they didn't get a dog. I would think that he wouldn't want a dog because the man is such a narcissist. They wouldn't be able to share his attention with it. Are you going to let me air that? Sure. That's a wrap. Hey. It is so exciting to know that many people in the United States and other countries actually enjoy listening to this podcast, this podcast. Once again, there are some very special people that I couldn't have done this without. Thank you to Dave Elkins for generously donating most of the music you hear in the show. Thank you to Mark Paget for the production and technical assistance. I can't stop working on this project. It is becoming almost like a second job. I I need to figure out a way to continue uh, affording it. So please make a donation at dogsinourworld.com to help me try and cover the never-ending production expenses. If you can't afford a donation, could you tell two people about us? Or leave a comment in places like iTunes or Google Play so other people can find us when using a search engine. Next month, we'll meet with author, professor, and philosopher Stephen Hales and examine how dogs can help us better understand that big, elusive topic called philosophy. Until then, I'll see you at dogsinourworld.com. Peace. Peace.